0: Well, let's turn once again to Titus chapter 2. Next week will be our final study in Titus. We're going to look at all of chapter 3, but tonight we're going to finish up chapter 2. Looking at verses 11 through 15. So follow along as I read. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Which, by the way, that just for a note, that's a... A proof text for the deity of Christ right there, that verse. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort rebuke with all authority and let no one despise you. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you God for the opportunity that you have this evening to speak to us concerning how you desire to work in our lives how your grace works to make us more like Jesus and so God I pray tonight that you would teach us that you would work in us, that you have your way in this place. I thank you, God, for these men. I thank you for just them coming after long days of work to be out, to come out here tonight and to study your word and encourage one another in the word. We thank you for that, God. And so we give you this time now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, tonight we're going to talk about the grace of God. And. We're going to talk about an aspect of God's grace that we really don't talk about that much, but I think that we really should. You see, normally when we talk about the grace of God, we think of saving grace. We're told in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And so we we love to talk about that, how we have been saved by grace apart from works. And Paul mentions here as he's writing to Titus, the, the grace of God that brings salvation that has appeared to all men. Now, this also could be a reference to Jesus himself because we're told in in John's gospel, remember it tells us that the, the word, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then John said, and we beheld his glory the glory of the only begotten of the Father, and what was he full of? Full of grace and truth. So in essence, Jesus was the personification of the grace of god and definitely our saving grace comes through him and so oftentimes we'd love to talk about you know the saving grace of god the grace of god that has saved us from our sins and then we also like to talk about god's sustaining grace we're told in second corinthians chapter 9 verse 8 and god is able to make all grace abound towards you that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. And so the grace of God that sustains us in the Christian life. And we like to talk about the strengthening grace of God. Remember Paul, when he had the thorn in the flesh and he asked the Lord that, that he would take it from him. And, and the Lord said that he wasn't going to do that. Paul, Paul prayed three times begging the Lord to take away whatever this thorn in the flesh was that just caused him so much grief. But the Lord appeared to him and said, my grace is sufficient for you and my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And the Lord was telling paul that i'm gonna strengthen you even when you're weak and remember how paul responded to that okay great i'll then glory i'll boast in my weakness i'll rejoice in it because when i'm weak that means he's strong that's a, when i'm weak that's when he's showing up that's when his strengthening grace comes into my life but tonight we're going to talk about the grace of god that teaches us we might call this the sanctifying grace You see, God's saving grace is also a training grace, and the training grace is meant to make a man's life sound. Remember, that word sound means healthy in every respect. So here's the question. How does grace teach us? Well, this is the beauty, really, of the new covenant that we were talking about on Sunday this past week. Remember what the Lord said through Ezekiel about that new covenant? He says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I'll take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And he says this, and I will put my spirit within you, and he will cause you to walk in my statues, and you will keep my judgments and do them. And so this training grace, this sanctifying grace, it's the work of the Spirit of God working in conjunction with the Word of God seeking to take us in a direction, to do something to us and to do something in us. And the work that he's wanting to do in us, the ultimate goal, I like to call it God's end game, is Romans 8.29 when he says this, that his desire is to conform us into the image of his own dear son. That's what the Holy Spirit and the work of God and the grace of God is seeking to do in every one of our lives is to make us more like Jesus. You see, God in his grace is committed to completing the work that he started in you. Isn't that glorious? How many of you have some unfinished projects at home? <laughs> I have those. And they just stare at you, don't they? You know, you see them, it's like, oh, man. And if your wife's like my my, my wife, she loves to remind me of like, when are you going to get that done? You know, when are you going to finish that? And sometimes they can just seem beyond my Ability and scope you know what as God looks at your life and my life yeah we are a work in progress but he doesn't look at it that way like you know I'm never gonna make it with Rob you know it's just not gonna happen no it's like he sees the completed work already and so we're in this process and it's his grace through the work of his Holy Spirit seeking to mold us and shape us This word teaching, I want you to notice that it's in the present tense. That means it's continually. He's continually teaching us, continually training us. And it's like a parent that is training his kids and teaching his kids. And in this word teaching, it also includes the idea of correcting. Because the Bible tells us whom God loves, he chastens, he disciplines. If you've been spanked by the Lord lately, it's okay. That just means he loves you. That that just means he's committed to you. That just means that he's committed to do that work in your life. Now, from this passage, we see three ways that God in his grace is seeking to teach us. And we see it in these three words, denying, living, and looking. And that's how I want to break this down tonight. First of all, I want to talk about this denying. He says, the grace of God is teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. You know, in Christianity, we have the tendency to preach, come as you are. Where religion teaches, clean up your act. And then you can come to God. Maybe you were involved in a religious system. that That's what they taught you. Like if you, if you want to approach God, you've got to do all these things to get your life in order. And so much of the focus was p- p- placed on us working on our outside. God says, no, come as you are. You come to me. You just come and surrender yourself to me. And I'm going to do a work on the inside. That's going to affect you on the outside because the new covenant is an inward work. And we know that he's going to do that work inside of us. And there's not a need when someone gets saved even to, you know, have us lay down all these do's and don'ts to tell them like, Oh, you got to stop doing this. Why? Because God places spirit within us and the Holy Spirit begins to do that in us. He begins to convict us. And, and, and we've all lived through this, right? We've all gone to where, you know, the Holy Spirit is, you know, something no one had to tell you about something that you should stop doing. It's like one day it's like just something in your heart. And you might not have even known at the time it was the Holy Spirit. But you're like, I don't think I should do that anymore. How many of you experienced that in your walk with the Lord, you know? Or maybe you were just a, you just cussed all the time. And all of a sudden, one day you're like, you know what, why am I talking like this? And it's like the Holy Spirit, you know, doing that work in you, just reminding you and gently sometimes just coming and speaking to our hearts and in that way because it's an inside job, this work of the Holy Spirit in teaching us and training us. There was a story of a teenage girl who accepted Christ as her Savior and at the church, that she accepted the Lord and they had a membership. And so she applied for membership in the church and she was meeting with one of the old deacons and he asked her the question, were you a sinner before you received Jesus into your life? Kind of a weird question, right? And, and she said, yeah, I, I am. And, and and then he asked her this, or she, she, she said, yes, I was. And then he asked his, then he asked her this question, are you still a sinner? And she said, well, to tell you the truth, I feel that I'm a greater sinner than ever. And then he responded, to me, I said, well, what change have you experienced then? And this was her response. She said, I don't know how to explain it, except I used to be a sinner running after sin, and now I'm a sinner running from sin. I love that, you know. That's the change. It's like before she was like, man, I was running after sin. I just couldn't get enough of it. And now she's like, I'm running from it. It was a a guy by the name of Thomas Brooks that put put it well when he said this, the more grace thrives in the soul, the more sin dies in the soul. That's the work of grace. So the school of grace teaches us to love not the world. Nor the things of the world. First John chapter two verse fifteen, and to be not conformed to this world. Romans chapter twelve, because the grace of God, the Holy Spirit working in our lives, is teaching us that friendship with the world is enmity against God. James four four. So it's teaching us the grace of God through the work of the Holy Spirit is teaching us all the time what it means that we're to be in this world, but we're not to be of this world. We don't belong to this world anymore. That, the, that we're to be salt and light, and this is the, the the thing I think that we're we're always seeking to figure out the balance, and especially in the times that we're living in right now, it's like, okay, what does it mean for you to be, to be salt and light? Because to be salt, you've got to be able to permeate. You've got a salt has to attach itself to something. So, how do I get close enough to the world and people in the world that I can rub off on them? How do I get in a place where you know, I can be light? Jesus said, you're the light of the world and no one takes a light and hides it under a bushel. No, I'm placing you out in the world so that you can you know be lights in the world. But how do we do that? This is one of the things that we're gonna, we're gonna do some groups tonight and we're gonna talk about. How do we do that? How do we you know be in the world but not of the world? It's important. And this is the thing that the Holy Spirit is seeking to teach us. So that's the work of grace. The Holy Spirit is working in conjunction with the word of God, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust, to flee temptation and run towards righteousness, to run after the Lord. So that things that used to interest you don't interest you anymore. Because this is a work of God doing that in your heart, changing your heart. So that's the first thing, denying, denying ungodliness and worldly lust. The second thing is living. He's teaching us how to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. To live soberly is to rule yourself well. And you know, the Bible tells us in the book of Galatians that, that one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is self-control. So we go from being these men who were out of control, ruled by our passions, ruled by our lust, ruled by our flesh, to suddenly being men who are able to exercise great self-control as we learn to listen to the Holy Spirit the voice of the Holy Spirit, and yielding ourselves to the Holy Spirit working in our hearts. Because we've talked about this before, the more that we respond to God's Spirit working in our lives, the more that we begin to understand that biblical principle that God's commandments are God's enablements. And so when the Holy Spirit is saying to me, you know, you need to stop doing that and start doing this. And I find myself in my flesh going, I don't know if I can stop doing that and start doing this, but I'm going to move in that direction. Suddenly, as I take those steps of faith, God is meeting me and his commandments, his power become my enablement to do the very thing that he's asking us to do. Now, it's interesting. Sometimes people think that if you overemphasize grace, it's going to cause people to sin more. And that grace becomes a license where people will say things like, you know, I'm going to do such and such. I know that it's wrong, but God's going to forgive me. That's when grace becomes a license. And there are some people who take you know, grace for granted and abuse grace in that way. But that is not a clear understanding of the grace of God. The grace of God isn't a license for sin. Listen to me. The grace of God isn't a license for sin, but it is a motivation for holiness. It's a motivation to walk in righteousness. You see, when I truly understand what God has done for me in showing me grace, it motivates me to live for him. It motivates me to want to walk after him. I mean, consider this. Consider the difference between grace and mercy. You know, mercy is not getting what we do deserve. And all of us here in this room, we all deserved hell. We deserved damnation. We deserved to be eternally separated from God because of our rebellion against Him. That's what we deserved, but God didn't give us that. That's mercy. He didn't give us what we deserved. But God takes it one step further. He doesn't just give us mercy in not giving us what we, you know, deserved, but he gives us grace. Grace is getting what you didn't deserve. It's getting even more than that. It's getting the blessing that he showers upon us. And so we're told in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And get this, who has blessed us? You notice that's in the present tense? He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And guess where you are at tonight if you know Jesus? You have been placed in Christ. And Paul says, He, blessed be the God and Father, our Father God, who loves us. He has blessed us right now, presently, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, belonging to Christ. Paul would say in in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20, for all the promises of God in him, in Jesus, are yes, and in him are amen to the glory of God through us. And again, we have been placed in Christ. So all the promises of God, this is his grace. This is us getting not just what we we didn't get, what we did deserve, but it's getting what we didn't deserve. That he says, not only am I going to save you, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to just pour my blessing and my promises and make them available to you. And the more I understand what God has done for me and the more that I understand what he has in store for me, the more that I want to live to please him. Remember when Paul said that Jesus Christ came to save sinners and Paul said, and I'm one, I'm a sinner. Paul said that in the beginning of his life beginning of his walk with the Lord. What's interesting is toward the end of his life, he makes the same statement. He says, it's a true statement. It's true that Jesus Christ came in this world to save sinners, and I'm the chief. (laughs) I'm the worst of the sinners. This is after walking with the Lord for like 30 years. Did Paul get worse? No, he didn't get worse. You know what happened? The more Paul came to understand the holiness of God, the more he came to understand How much of a sinner he was the more he came to understand how holy jesus was the more he came to understand how much he had fallen short but then he also came to understand how much grace the lord had showered upon him and the more he realized that it just became he became in awe of the grace of god that's why paul wrote so much about god's grace And his motivator was this. Paul would say, it's the love of Jesus Christ that compels me. Now, he wasn't saying it's my love for Jesus that compels me. He was saying, it's my understanding of Jesus's love for me. That's what compels me. That's what motivates me to live for God and serve God and travel all over the place and get shipwrecked and do all of these different things is because I realize how much Jesus loves me and the grace that he's poured out upon me. And Paul would say this, I'm a debtor to Christ. Now catch this. When we think of that idea of being in debt, we think of it as a duty, a negative thing. Oh, I got this debt I got to pay. Paul did not look at his debt to Christ when he uses that phrase. It wasn't a debt of duty. It was a debt of gratitude. Because Jesus had saved him. Remember what Jesus said when that woman came to him in the courtyard of the the Pharisees and she was a woman of ill repute, repute and You know, she anointed him and the Pharisees were like getting all bent out of shape. Like, why is he letting him, you know, her touch him? And and Jesus, remember he said, he who's been forgiven much loves much. And sometimes I remember because I didn't have, you know, a radical testimony like some of you. My testimony is that God saved me before I got into the pit. I can look and see how I would have ended up in the pit, but He got He saved me before that. Some of you, He saved you out of the pit, some of us He saved us from the pit. And I used to think, you know, man, you know, God, you know, I don't feel like I've been forgiven of that much because I haven't, you know, done all these crazy things that some of the other people do. But that's not what that means. It means it's our understanding. It's our understanding of the depths of the sin in our hearts, the depravity, the potential. The, the, the sense of what, how does it go? Except for the grace of God, there go I. And it's recognizing that, understanding that. And Paul, you know, he came to that place of, 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 it was just his motivation for living soberly and exercising self-control and, and developing, you know, spiritual discipline is understanding how much he'd been forgiven, how much he was loved. You know that sport, that, that phrase spiritual discipline is, is one a lot of times that we don't like to hear. We don't like to talk about spiritual disciplines. A guy by the name of Kent Hughes wrote an excellent book. I would really encourage it. It's a book for men, The Disciplines of a Godly Man. And sometimes it's a, it's a title like that that we go, oh, I don't know if I want to do that because that just seems like, you know, it's 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 gonna put me on a works trip or something, but that's the wrong idea. Because the spiritual discipline, let me just talk about this one of morning devotions. Getting up in the morning to spend time with Jesus, to get into the Word, to pray. Listen, it's not a, oh, I have to do this. It's not a duty. That's why we call it devotions. (laughs) It's a devotion. It's not a, oh, I have to do this. It's I get to do this. It's a privilege. To think about it in this way, when we get up in the morning, guys, the God of the universe is waiting to spend time with you and spend time with me. Or whenever in your day, I know some of you guys get up really, really early, and so you have to do that maybe later in the day, and that's fine. But, but whenever it is, it's the, real, the realization that the God of the universe Jesus, our great God and Savior, as Paul calls him here, who died on the cross every single day, he's waiting to spend time with you and me. It's a privilege. It's not a duty. It's a devotion. It's like, wow. I mean, I don't know in your realm, in your world, like who would be the wow factor for you if you got a a call tomorrow that, You know, whoever that individual was that said, hey, I want to take you to lunch on Saturday, that you'd be going like, wow, I can't believe this. You'd be like calling all your friends and going, I'm going to lunch with so-and-so. Well, God every day wants to have time with us. How amazing is that? How incredible is that? Think of it in this way. The idea of not a have-to, but a get-to Um, My wife is my best friend. And on my calendar on Friday, that's my day off, it says Denise Day. That's how I've labeled it. Because that day is set aside for just me and her. And whenever there is a day... Like this Friday coming up, it's Veterans Day, so my grandson is out of school. And so we're watching him. And I love my grandson, but I'm like bummed. (laughs) There's a little bit of disappointment, especially because my wife and I have been apart for the last six days. Um, She was in Oklahoma. She came home on Sunday. I left and flew up to Monterey, just got back this afternoon. Um, for a Calvary Chapel pastor's leader meeting up there. And um, so I've been like looking forward to just catching up with her. And and she reminded me um, yesterday, we've got Josiah on on Friday. And um, and again, I love my grandson. I just spent five days, four days with him all by myself. I, I love him, but you know, I'm, but, but there's a disappointment there of like, oh, Looking forward to just, because I'm not like this. Oh, I have to spend time with my wife on Fridays. I'd rather be golfing, but I, I have to spend time with Denise. No, it's like, she's my best friend. I get to spend time with her. Someone else calls and it's like, you know, hey, you want to do something on Friday? Nope, I'm, I'm booked. <laughs> you know? Well, that's how we should feel about the Lord. It's like the Lord's like, hey, I get to spend time with Jesus tomorrow. Just me and him. I get to open up his word, and and he wants to speak to me. It's, it's the privilege. This is what, what motivated Paul in his spiritual disciplines in his life. To live soberly, to be a man just exercised by, by you know, self-control and, and having these spiritual disciplines to grow in this because it was like, I can't believe that, G, that Jesus loves me after everything I've done and that he wants to have a relationship with me, and he even wants to use me. It's that awe-inspiring. So growing in grace becomes my motivation for living soberly, my motivation for how to live righteously, which speaks of our actions. Living righteously is how we act, how we walk. There was a young girl who was out at a miniature golf place with some of her friends she was a high school girl and and there was uh one of the guys from her school pulled up and he saw her and her friends and she said hey already know tonight my house party my parents are out of town we've got a couple keggers you know come on and and the other kids were like stoked like all right awesome we'll be there but this one girl she was a she was a christian and she was like and they're like hey are you coming she goes no i'm not coming and And the one guy said to her, he said, are you afraid that your father's going to hurt you if you go? And she said, no, I'm afraid that it'll hurt him if I go. And I love him so much, I don't want to hurt him. And that's that motivation with the Lord. It's like to walk in the fear of the Lord is not to be afraid of God, but it's to walk in a way where I don't want to do anything that causes him grief. So the motivation, the grace of God, the Holy Spirit in us is seeking to move us in that way, to, to, to walk in righteousness, to walk in a way where our actions are, where we have this desire that we didn't have before. I want to please God. I want to please him with my life. And not just a motivation to in our actions, but also in our attitudes. This is what he means by, and to live godly. This speaks of our attitudes. Because, see, it's one thing to do the right thing, but with the wrong attitude. Our kids do that, right? You know, our kids, they'll do the right thing. They'll do what we ask them to do, but they have the wrong attitude. Maybe your employees do that sometimes. They're doing the right thing, but they have the wrong attitude. Well, we can do that in our relationship with God, but the Holy Spirit's seeking to have that perfect combination where we're not just doing the right thing, but we're doing it with the right attitude. That's that's godliness, righteousness. So he's seeking to move us in that direction, teaching us to deny ungodliness, worldly lust, and to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. And then here's the third thing that we're to be—he's teaching us to be that we're to be looking, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. You see, we we are not just to live for Jesus, but we are to be looking for Jesus. Remember the early believers, the disciples, how they saw him ascend into heaven? Remember what the angels said? You know, they're like staring like, that was amazing. Did you see that? Like he just, where'd he go? And the angel appears and goes, well, why are, why are you guys still looking up into the sky? Know this, that the same way he left, he's going to come back. And so in the early church, they lived with this sense of an imminent return. They were believing in that Jesus could return at any moment that they were expecting that. And that's how we're to live. That's how the Lord wants us to live. We are to live like Jesus could come back at any moment, to be looking for his return. Now, I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 24, Because in Matthew chapter 24, we see two men, two servants contrasted in regards to their master's coming. Matthew chapter 24, we're going to pick it up in verse 45. And we see a faithful and wise servant and an evil servant. And this gives us a an idea, a picture of what it looks like to be looking for, living our lives looking for the coming of Jesus. Because it doesn't mean that we just sit around all day like this. That's not what it means. No, it means so much more than that. So verse 45, it says, Who then, this is in the, Matthew 24 is dealing with the the end times, it's dealing with the second coming of Christ. And um, Jesus says, who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Here's the first thing we want to note. About what it means to live our lives looking for his return is that we're taking care of business, we're being good stewards. You see, every single one of you here, you have been made a steward of something. God has placed things into your hands. He's placed your job in your hands, an ability to, you know, make an income in your hands, ability to have resources through that in your hands that you can use to take care of your family, but also to invest in the things of God. You've been, some of you, God has placed in your hands your children. Those of you who are married, He's placed in your hands your wife. This is everything that God has made us stewards of. Some of us, God has given you a ministry that he has made you a steward of. And to be living as a faithful and wise servant, looking for the return, waiting, being expecting of the return of Jesus, is to be about your taking care of the business of being a good steward of what he's placed into your hands, what what he has entrusted to you. And notice what it says in verse 47 assuredly I say to you that he will make him a ruler over all of his goods now oftentimes though here's what happens we start thinking like I don't know man it's been so long you know these promises the Lord returning and he hasn't come and and so we can start we can start get to lackadaisical a little bit about what he's made us stewards of we can, you know, lose focus of what our priorities should be. And we start putting priorities on, on other things. We need to remain faithful. The faithful and wise servant is the one who is taking care of the business that, that God has made of a steward of, what God has entrusted into his hands. There was a tourist who visited a very exquisite garden on a lovely estate, in italy and if you've ever been to italy there's so many of these things and he spoke to the caretaker and he asked him how long have you been here and the caretaker said 25 years he says wow that's a long time and he asked him how often has the owner been here to see his estate and he said four times he's been here four times and then he asked him "Well, when did he come last and the caretaker said it was 12 years ago And then the the tourist said, well, who comes by and takes care of this place? I mean, it's immaculate. And the caretaker said, I'm pretty much left here to take care of this all by myself. And he said, that's amazing. The tourist said, you you keep this garden so spick and span that one would think you were expecting the owner to come tomorrow. And the caretaker said, no, 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 I'm expecting him to come today. That's the key. I'm expecting him to come today. So I'm being about my business. And I want to ask you this question. Maybe this is one of the ones that you can, I didn't put this on the list, but you guys that are leading groups tonight, maybe ask this question. What would change in your life if you started living like Jesus was going to come today? What would change? What would you do differently? If you thought, okay, tomorrow at five o'clock, Jesus is showing up, (laughs) you know, What would change in your life? But notice, I want you to notice what it says here about the second servant. It calls him the evil servant. Verse 48. It says, but if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming. Now, I want you to notice this. He's not denying his coming. He's not saying, my master's never coming. He's saying, "Ah, I just don't think he's going to come soon. He's delaying his coming. And you know... I think this is one of the strategies of the devil, is to get people to think, well, Jesus, it's just not going to happen. You know, those, those Jesus freaks have been talking about this. You know, that Chuck Smith guy, he's been talking about this, you know, forever and a day that Jesus is, is coming soon. And it just, you know, I've been hearing that forever. It isn't going to happen. In fact, this is a fictional story, but I think there's a, a really, um, it's an interesting one, but it's a strategy meeting between the devil and a couple of his demons trying to figure out what can we do to get people off track. And one of the demons comes and says, I know, we can tell them, we can spread the, the message that there is no God. And the devil goes, ah, that's not going to work. Because people just understand, you know, they've been. it's been put, made very clear that the design speaks of a designer. So to say there is no God, you know, that just that doesn't make sense. And then one of the other guys, one of the other demons said, I know what we'll tell them, we'll tell them there's no judgment. There's no penalty. And, and they said, no, everybody knows that there's always consequences. So, you know, that's not going to work. And then the third demon says, I know what we'll tell them. We'll tell them there's no hurry. And the devil said, that's it. That's the one. We'll tell them there's no hurry. And I think there's a lot of people today, people in, in the church, people who are used to be in the church that are no longer in the church, that have bought into that lie. It's just There's no hurry. He's delaying. I've got all the time in the world. I don't need to worry about this. You guys have been talking about the coming of Jesus forever and a day. Hasn't happened. I'll worry about that later when I get old or, you know, whatever. That type of mentality. You know, people like this. We've seen people who are in that mode right now. Here's what's interesting. Well, we see here, this is what happens in the heart of the servant that says he's not coming. Notice verse 48. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and an hour that he's not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites, And there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Two characteristics we see here of the evil servant who says, Ah, my master delays his coming. The first is brutality. He's mean to others. And you see, those who are not looking for the coming of Jesus end up being focused on the here and now. They end up becoming materialistic in their mindset. And as they become materialistic in their mindset, their mindset becomes this way. is They they look at people to be used and not to be loved. So they look at people from the standpoint of how can I use this person or use these people to get ahead, to get my way, to fulfill my agenda. And so people become items to be used instead of people created in the image of God to be loved. And if they're not helping me, I'm not interested in them. Or if they're not, you know, doing what I've called them to to do, then I'm going to get upset with them. And and there's anger and being. So there's brutality. That's the first mark. The second is carnality. That's the second mark. Notice it says that he begins to eat and drink with the drunkards. It's that mentality of just pursuing and chasing after the pleasures of life. Party hardy. It was Joseph Stoll in his book Eternity that said this Earthbound believers live the most important segments of their lives only in the context of this world. Their expectations, dreams, and hopes and plans all relate to what they can acquire and experience here. That's the carnally minded person. They're just focused on the flesh, how to indulge their flesh. But the Bible says to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. That's what the Lord has for us. I'm going to close with this. In Union Grove, Wisconsin, there's a home for mentally challenged kids called the Shepherd's Home. The founder of the home, a guy named by the name of Bud Woods, says that one of the major maintenance problems in this home is dirty windows. And someone asked him, "How do these dirty windows get? How these windows get so dirty?" And he said that you can walk through the corridors of that home almost every single day, and you see these kids with their hands and noses and faces pressed against the windows, looking up into the sky to see if Jesus might be coming back, because they know that that's the only hope that they have to be made whole. They know that they're mentally off or they're physically handicapped. And they know when Jesus comes back that that is going to be the end. That is going to be the, the, the change. And I want to just ask you, you know, when's the last time that you and I maybe found ourselves looking up into the sky? You know, there's some clouds in the sky today as so I was flying in. I'm thinking, you know, the Bible says he's coming in the clouds. Like, could it be today? Could it be today? The Lord wants us to live in that way. I don't have the time tonight to go into the rest of that verse but that talks about the punishment, and what does that mean exactly? But I'll just tell you this: I don't want to find out what that means. I want to be looking. I want to be waiting. I want to be watching. I'll close with this verse. In First John chapter three, I love this, says this, "Behold. Everybody say, behold. behold. That word "behold" means to look at and be amazed." Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Isn't that amazing? God looks at you and he says, you're my child. I love you. You're mine. You belong to me. And John says, behold, like, guys, this should just, like, freak us out. This just makes us amazed that God, you know, has has loves us and He's made us His Father. And then He says this, and beloved, therefore He says the world does not know us. Why? Because it doesn't know Him. You have people around you scratching their heads going, "I just don't get you." Well, that's biblical. It's because they don't get Him. But then He says this, beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, when he comes, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That's our hope, guys. That's the finish line. That's the product. We're going to see Jesus, and the transformation is going to be complete. We're going to be like him. And notice what John says next. He says, and everyone who has this hope in him, what does he do? He purifies himself, just as he is pure. And this is what Paul is saying, that the grace of God that brings salvation, the work of the Holy Spirit through the word of God, bringing the grace of God into our lives is wanting to teach us to walk in this way, to live with that hope, to be pure because he is pure. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for these men. And I pray, God, that as we just now begin to, Get into groups and discuss your word tonight. Discuss what you've spoken to us tonight. Lord, I pray that you would just illuminate even more in this time together how you desire your grace to be working in our lives and that we would be men, men who are living like the faithful and wise servant, being faithful with the resources, the responsibilities, the opportunities that you've placed into our hands to steward for you in these last days. In Jesus' name, amen.